Welcome to Manager Tools. Onboarding, Chapter 1, Part 4, Q&A. This guest answers the following questions, just a whole bunch of onboarding questions from our uh, listeners. Here we go. Are you thinking about putting your team through training, but also concerned that they won't actually follow through with implementing it? Nobody likes to waste money, and every day managers are faced with deciding how to spend those limited resources. Well, lucky for you, there's Roadmap. Roadmap will not only guide your managers through rolling out the Trinity, but also allows them to track and record their data, such that you can verify that they're following through on actually putting the guidance into practice. If you believe in the concept of trust and verify, Roadmap is your mecca. Learn more at manager-tools.com forward slash products forward slash roadmap to learn more. I don't know if we've done it before, but if we haven't done it in a long time. It's a first. I, we announced it as a first in 13 years. When we started uh, the first part of onboarding, we're now in part four, that's right. We asked folks to write in with some questions about onboarding. So lucky us, we got a bunch of great questions and we're going to go through them. Yeah, I mean, for those of you who aren't longtime listeners, I mean, we've had many multiple-part podcasts, and there are many, many people out there who write me to tell me they hate them because they don't want to listen until they can hear all of it together, or they just get the show notes. Uh, But in this case, Mike had the genius idea that in part one, we could ask for questions because we knew it was going to be a multi-parter, and we're not even done with onboarding yet by any stretch after today's show, that we could ask for questions. And we got... A ton. I've got pages and pages here. So, pretty cool. Let's start and see how far we can get through this. So, our first question comes from Daniel Slovacek. I think that's how you pronounce it. Daniel, forgive me if I uh, don't get it right. So, his question, Daniel's question, how much process should be there in the onboarding of a new employee besides the standard company procedures? HR is very much dictating. Vacations, time tracking, company restaurant, company restaurant, cool, uh, et cetera. When is there too much process and not enough human interaction left? So actually, in Daniel's case, I actually answered it. And then I promised I'd do it on the air as well. And what I sent in my email, just full disclosure, folks, is I told Daniel, I don't understand what you mean by too much process. I think what you mean is too much admin. And I think we're in agreement that great onboarding is not just about admin, the way so many staff functions in the organization want to make it about a checklist of to-dos for HR, IT, and so on. We see it, onboarding, as much more about creating earlier effectiveness. And that includes not just admin tasks, but also relationships, early read-ins to problems and issues and projects, et cetera, et cetera. So the answer to the question is neither yes nor no. I know that's frustrating to hear sometimes. Let me put it this way. I read something in the last couple of years which says that discipline is actually the font of creativity, that having known boundaries can actually improve your creativity. So you can't be creative. You can't be relational. You can't truly focus on the candidate or on the the new hire who hasn't yet started about who they are as a person, if in the back of your mind, you're wondering whether or not everything is going to be done and whether the logistics and the admin, all the stuff around their site visit or their house hunting visit or their school visit or their early trip or whatever are are being done and done well. 
So we think for the vast majority of onboarding programs, you want a massively increased checklist or process, I think, is probably what what I think you mean there, and then massively more interaction as well. And I know that everybody's busy and you don't have time, but you're going to spend this time anyway. You can spend it early on relationships and setting standards and being clear about guidance and procedures and setting down parameters of how you're going to work and ground rules for the office and so on. Or you can do it later when you haven't covered these things. And the way people find out that they're in the wrong is you tell them that they're in the wrong. People would much rather know sooner rather than later. And they'd much rather have better relationships leading, of course, to faster productivity sooner, which is what every manager wants with a new hire, more productivity sooner. Thank you, sir, for that, Daniel, for that that great question. Okay, next, Paul Van Dyke asks contractors, set expectation dates as new directs work through the onboarding plan micromanaging and is explaining Trinity early or late in onboarding. Okay, so contractors, yeah, they go through onboarding. There are certainly some steps that are not they don't go through. They probably have a different badging step. They probably don't have the same payroll steps. Depending upon their physical work situation, they don't have a kitting out, a similar kitting out step, which would include desk and laptop and so on, because probably the firm you're contracted with has provided them a laptop. Certainly there are some IT people who are sharing a bay somewhere near the server floor, and they don't need a desk, even though they're a contractor that reports to you if you're in IT, for instance. So yeah, I don't think it's that hard to take a contractor and the onboarding process and ask yourself, okay, what subset of our full onboarding process would a contractor go through? And I'll tell you something. I don't think you need a brand new contractor process. I think you take the existing process and we're going to publish ours, uh, a template, a raw template, a full template with hundreds of tasks in it so that you can simply delete the tasks that don't apply to you and then determine how those things would go in order for your team and your organization. And we'll probably give you some guidelines about timing, when things would happen and so on, but you can move them up and down fairly easily and we'll give you formulas you can change and so on in the spreadsheet. But what you would do for contractors, I mean, you just take the massive one, you call ours down into the one that you would say, this is version one for our first person we onboard. There's probably way too many tasks on here. We're going to be able to check several of them off as being in A for the first person through because Some of them apply to these type of people, but not to these type of people and so on. And then what you're going to do is you're going to say, let's look at this again and let's go through every step. And by the way, you don't have to do it. It doesn't have to be a meeting. You go through every single step and you say, would this apply to a contractor or not? And then after you get rid of half, maybe I'm I'm making that up. It may only be a third. It may be two thirds. I've never done it. After I go through and call out the non-contractor tasks, then I say to myself, okay, In what way is the timeline affected by contractor hiring? I would suspect it's compressed, and so we would need to change some of those dates. You would do all that not significantly in advance of your first contractor hire, but rather 
when you hire your first contractor or within 15 minutes of him or her accepting. And the reason why is, especially if you've already had somebody go through the generic process, the big process, you don't know enough yet. And what's more, a task that's going to do day after tomorrow is going to be due day after tomorrow only takes you probably five seconds to adjust in that first sit down that you have right after you hire the contractor and say, ooh, I need a process. But you can feel good about what you're going to take them through because you know, have a process, you know you have a process sitting in front of them that is far more robust than it needs to be. You don't need to feel the panic of, I don't have a plan. The part of your brain that starts to panic, I put this... I think in things I think I think which comes out this week, the part of your brain that starts to panic isn't really interested in the details of the plan. It's just interested that there's a plan. So if you have in the back of your mind this massive template for an entire onboarding process that would take virtually anybody through, and then you get to call out 50% of it for a contractor and just adjust the dates a little bit, and it doesn't have to be exactly right every single date, because after two or three or four runs through, you're going to have some data in order to feel like whether your estimates were good or not. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Contractors are easier. Eh, probably a con- compressed time frame, but if you know what the time frame is, it's not hard. Okay, let's see. The next thing you talked about is micromanaging. Micromanaging. <laughs> you know, I could I could give my standard spiel about micromanaging. I will because we probably have some new listeners. Somebody who's listening for the first time about. Listen to us for the first time about management and so on. So the vast majority of people in large organizations today, and particularly in corporate organizations, but it's also true in academia. It's also true in the government. In fact, it may even be more true in the government and academia because government and academia whine about it so much. The vast majority of people are not only not being micromanaged, they're nowhere near being managed enough. The average person thinks on a scale of one to 10, 10 being micromanager from you know where, down to zero being the ultimate laissez-faire, don't care, don't even show up as long as you get your work done kind of boss. They think they're probably at a seven. They're actually at a two or a three. It is the modern world's focus on individuality and this happens over generations, has through since the beginning of mankind, the swing back and forth between fealty and respect for institutional and organizational life versus the primacy of individual liberties and freedoms. Right now, we are the pendulum swinging back toward individuality, and everybody thinks that if their boss gives them negative feedback or gives them clear guidance or sits them down and says, We're going to spend 90 minutes and I have a three-month plan for you and you're going to follow the three-month plan. They scream bloody murdy that they're being micromanaged. Setting expectations and dates for new directs, working through the onboarding plan, being micromanaging is so beyond ludicrous, it even goes to the level of galactically stupid. It's that bad. And 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 Paul, I know you didn't mean it. You're probably just having to parry somebody asking the question. It's not micromanaging. Now, if Mike hires me and he says to me, there are 150 steps, it's really arrogant for me to say he's micromanaging me 
Because in fact, one of the things Mike could do, if he feels like I'm very competent, and these are all pretty simplistic tasks, as you'll see, he could say to me, you're in charge of your own onboarding, and I expect weekly progress reports. And if you're going to go red on anything, I expect notification two hours before you do. Now, am I micromanaging him? I don't think there's a CEO in the world who would say yes. More importantly, even if I oversaw it, what do the Chinese say? Beginnings are delicate times. How many times have people hired the wrong person and then realized they had a chance to save them, but it's already been six months and they didn't do enough early on to explain to them what their strengths and weaknesses were and how they needed to fit in, and the manager didn't do enough. How is it that we're not doing enough and yet somehow we can accuse of being a micromanager? No, this is not micromanaging. It's so far from micromanaging, it's not even funny. Okay, next part. You know, Trinity, early or late. Yeah, early or late in onboarding. I'd have to check our master list, but I don't know what most people mean by early or late. I would suspect that if I hired Mike to come work for me, within three days, he would know that since I was his boss, we were going to be doing weekly one-on-ones. Some managers would then go on to say, and I would be telling him about the Trinity, and I'd have him listen to Manager Tools Basics, and probably I would too, but I wouldn't have any problem with the manager saying, no, really, I just want you to focus on -on one-on-ones for now. And later on, we'll talk about feedback. And pretty soon, you're going to figure out that there's an entire system I've got here, and we're marching through it the way I have done many, many, many times before. But I wouldn't feel too terribly strongly one with the other about that. Is that early? I think a lot of people would say, yes, wow, in the first three days, you're going to talk about one-on-ones. But if it's a new hire, I'm going to do a one-on-one in the first week because I don't have to wait the three weeks for his calendar to clear. And in fact, in his first one-on-one, I could choose to make it 45 minutes long and spend the first 15 minutes saying, I'm going to brief you about a one-on-one and then we're going to have one. And you probably never had one before that's run like this, but this is the way I do it. And I had the leeway to do so. So if you thought that was early, great. I think of it as late. I mean, I wouldn't have any problem with Mike hiring me and saying in the second week of a three-month process before I come to work for him, him saying, hey, by the way, I need 15 minutes of your time sometime next Thursday or Friday morning. Don't want to interrupt in your family. I know you're enjoying some time off. That's great. But if I could have 15 minutes, I'd love to sit down and talk to you about how we manage here. You probably got some hints of it. I want to explain to you about the culture and how we do things and so on to get you ready and hopefully do some advance work. So I would consider that to be early in the first week after someone accepted a job. The very latest I would talk about it is in the first three days after they started. Okay. On to the next one. Jeremy Schlosser asks, what should be the very first thing you say to your new hire when they walk into your office? Hello. (laughs) Can we move to the next question now? Let me say this. I want to come back to the micromanaging thing. You know, we give very specific guidance because we know what it feels like to be a manager, to be an executive, and to want to know how to handle a situation and to get the most vague and uncertain nostrums and ideas and encouragement and recycled proverbs and psalms and lines from movies that didn't help me one bit when I was trying to decide how to answer 
somebody who came to me and said, one of my directs, when he goes to the bathroom, doesn't wash his hands, what should I do? Now, if you tell somebody, be direct, be honest, be upfront, be caring, all of those phrases, those B phrases are always bad guidance because they're not guidance. They're recommendations about your state of mind and who you are as opposed to what to do. But we try to be very, very specific. That said, there are really, and, and we, give, we give specific phrases that we recommend you use. But there are very few situations where we're pretty adamant that you must say it precisely this way because we have a big pile of data that supports this phrasing versus that phrasing. And that phrasing is easier, but this phrasing works better if you're willing to fight your way through the first 10 times that it feels really awkward. So the very first thing you say to your new hire, I think is entirely up to you. On the other hand, we have guidance called new hire first meeting series, where we talk about be ethical, be kind, achieve results, and so on. I probably wouldn't lay all of those concepts on somebody in their very first meeting. But now that I've had a chance to think about this a little bit more, I will tell you that my standard thing I've said over the years of hiring lots of people is say, Hey, good to see you. Welcome. I am so excited you're here. We have so much work that needs to be done. And obviously, it's really hard to get hired here. So we're really glad you're here. Let's get to work. Yeah. I was hoping you'd say that. That's what my answer would have been, right? Which is, hello. Great to have you here. I'm so excited about what we're going to do together. Yeah. And hey, by the way, bring a notebook and pen because you're going to leave here with a lot of stuff to do. And when they say, really? Yeah, so yeah. Now, some of it's onboarding stuff, <laughs> which you already know about. But we have to get that done now because I can't have you doing it four months from now and me getting an email once a week from HR increasingly losing my credibility with them because you didn't do the stuff you're supposed to do in week three. So I think, good morning, welcome, excited to see you coming in my office. Let's talk about non-negotiables. Cool. Chip Sanders asks, I know that I can't train my people for every possible circumstance that they will encounter, so I encourage them to develop judgment on when they take action versus when they need to come to me for guidance. This simplifies things, but what do you recommend for training judgment? Of course, judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment, but any suggestions? No. Well, let me put it this way. I'm being, I'm being very particular. I would not train judgment. To me, when I hear the word training, and one of my many weaknesses is actually taking words to mean precisely what they say, which gets me hoisted on my petard quite frequently, and I respect that, guys. I wouldn't train judgment. I would encourage the development of judgment by heavy workload and frequent decision-making at increasingly levels of responsibility. That's it. And lots of feedback, right? That's the other part of it. Yeah, but look, I mean... For a high performer, sometimes you don't need to give them lots of feedback. If you tell them you're supposed to do X by three months from now, I'm being overly simplistic here, guys, and they don't achieve X by three months from now, you don't need to tell them they disappointed you. There's no amount of disappointment you could visit upon them that is anywhere near in the orders of magnitude they feel that they didn't, they feel about themselves because they didn't do what they said they were going to do, what they worked for, what they promised you, what they committed to. So I don't think training judgment is the answer. 
you say I, you encourage them to develop judgment on when they take action versus when they need to come to me for guidance. So what I would say is I push decision-making down much further than most people do, and I find that my life is made a great deal easier, and I find that people live up to high expectations, and they live down to low expectations too. But we've actually already covered this on a podcast where we talk about, and it's probably not the most precise podcast we've ever had called A Manager's Favorite Letter in the Language is the letter C, which if you'll form it with your left thumb and forefinger, um, I'm sorry, your right thumb and forefinger, and hold it up to your face, it looks like the letter C to your direct when they're talking to you. And then if you turn your thumb and forefinger and point to them, now it looks like your thumb and forefinger are pointing at them, right? And when your direct says, what do you think I should do? I say, I don't know. What do you think? And I, I pretend as if they shot a BB or a, a bullet at my finger and the finger catches it, it runs around the crux of my hand and goes back out my thumb and goes back to them. And they say, what should I do? I say, I don't know. What do you think? And again, I put the burden right back on them. And there's a famous, famous, historically funny um, management video called, I think it's something like, Who's Got the Monkey? Or The Monkey of Delegation? Or Don't Get Stuck with the Monkey? Uh, it's a famous VHS tape. I think the guy, the training guy in it is a guy named Onken, O-N-C-K-E-N. And it's a manager whose people come to him all day and say, hey, would you do this for me? Hey, would you do this for me? Hey, would you do this for me? And every time he does it, a monkey jumps on his back. A physical monkey, a live monkey. It's, it's surprisingly good. It works really, really well. And every one of the conversations is innocuous. Um, and if you want to develop people who have lots of good judgment, you make them use their judgment and screw up and give them negative feedback or you make them use their judgment and they do it well and they learn what works and what doesn't work and you give them positive feedback. So that's my recommendation. Don't know that that's onboarding particularly, but it happens around the same time as onboarding. Okay. So Bob Swaska has a few questions. He says, I have a few questions. And yes, Bob, you do. <laughs> of onboarding yeah. in a case where I manage a department of 25 people having four directs. When we hire, the new employees always report to my directs and not to me. Therefore, I am minimal participant in the process. So and here we go with the questions. As a manager of the hiring manager, how involved should I be with the actual onboarding? Is a 15-minute hello meeting enough? Should I have daily check-ins for a week or more substantial meetings? Should I be present as an observer when my director is briefing the new employee? Don't read the West. Let's stay. You, you, can't, you can't hold all those in your head while we... Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> I can read them, though. They're sitting in front of me. Okay. On my laptop here in a hotel room in Wisconsin. Go Badgers. So, how involved should the manager of a manager, the director of the new hire, be involved uh, with onboarding? And the answer is not very much. The answer is a 15-minute hello meeting is probably enough. Assuming two things. One, you have encouraged your direct, who is the manager of the new hire, to take responsibility for their own onboarding process and that that onboarding process shares similarities and I assume learning with fellow managers uh, 
other peer managers of the manager of the new hire so that among your organization, however many managers you have reported to you, they're sharing learnings and making everybody's process more effective. In other words, the hot wash process that happens at the end, everybody gets to learn from. It's shared across your organization. And or two, maybe it's B, I can't remember, you are not a unique standalone division where you are essentially the division chief and have your own budget. If you're a director that is a standalone director, maybe you're the only customer service department in the company. And because of that, and because there's only 50 people in your group, and because you all work off campus in one small building, and because they're going to run into you regularly, you might be more involved in both setting up the onboarding process and then meeting with them briefly each week. But this question essentially alludes to the same basic principles and tensions that exist in skip-level meetings. I get this question. We get this question all the time. It's probably, it's one of the questions that I regrettably allow to irritate me more often than almost any other. When someone says to me, Mark, I used to have seven directs, and then I got promoted, and now one of my directs got promoted to take my place. And so now I have five directs and each one of them has between five and 10 directs. And I don't feel I know their directs well enough. So I'm doing one-on-ones with all of my directs and all of their directs. And I don't have time and I don't know what to do. And I say, well, you know, stop doing one-on-ones with your directs, directs, with your skips. Don't do skip level one-on-ones. But I want to. And I feel like, okay, Doctor, it really hurts me when I poke myself in the eye with a sharp stick. Well, I think the first thing we should do is stop poking ourselves in the eye with a sharp stick. That'll probably improve things, at least initially, somewhat. So a director, a manager of a manager, must never do regularly scheduled weekly one-on-one meetings with a skip. Because what you're having now is two one-on-ones for that skip between a manager and that manager's manager. And pretty soon, the director undermines the manager. So I don't think you should be that involved. Is it possible you could take one or two meetings with the new hire to give them directorate mission and vision and values and share with them history? Sure, that could be fine. If you're going to be in regular meetings with them and you want to supplement what your manager who reports to you does a little bit fine. Should you be talking to them every day? No. Should you get regular reports on how they're doing on their onboarding? No. Why no on those two things? Because let the manager do it. I assume if you're a manager of managers, they have responsibilities. Let them do the things they're supposed to do. Let's not promote up to your level a problem that is supposed to be solved at a pay grade lower than yours. Yeah. How are your managers ever going to develop if you, if, you, yeah. if you do all that? Should I be present as an observer when my direct is briefing the new employee? Only if you're creepy. Right. I know. Unless you want to send the message you don't trust your manager. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Guess. And the whole observer thing, Mike, brings up this thing where no man and woman who work together can be alone in the same room at the same time. I don't, you know, if they're HR people with me, you're welcome to send me a mail and tell me how wrong I am. But I just think that's dumb. 
And I'll tell you something else. It absolutely stunts women's careers. Yes, some of you think that it will help women by protecting them from predators. And I would agree there are a few predators that you will protect them from. But there are far more women who are denied opportunities for great relationships because there aren't opportunities to have 15-minute conversations that turned into an hour talking about career and goals and professional life and choices and ethics and so on with a male boss. Now the email begins. That's it, everyone, for this week. We'll finish this one up next week. In the meantime, have a great one. So long, folks.